Okay, so um, you're all welcome to this morning's study. And by God's grace, we are going to finish chapters 14 to 16. And um, that will imply that we have four more sections to finish the book of Matthew. Okay, and um, as I always do, I'll, I'll quickly run us through the summary of what we've done so far then. Um, that will put us in a better perspective to understand what we are going to do today. So um, we said the book of Matthew um, being the first of the Gospels. Okay, it was written obviously by Matthew who was a task collector and because of his skills of being a task collector he had the ability to write very fast and was more detailed as compared to the other writers of the gospel. Of course, he started in the chapter one by giving us the genealogy of Christ, um, starting all the way from um, Abraham. And um, chapter two, we looked at the, um, the birth of Christ and the wise men. And in chapter three, we introduced John the Baptist, who also introduced Christ. And we saw the baptism of Christ as well in chapter three. And in chapter four, we saw that Christ was led into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. Okay, and we understood some of the things over there. Then we came to chapter five, six, and seven, which we call the Sermon on the Mountain. And then this um, is what I call the Manifesto of Christ and that actually began the teaching ministry of Christ and we understood certain things from those um, triplets or the triple scriptures. Of course, chapter five is about the beatitude and chapter six um, was talking about prayer and fasting and ending with what we termed as the, the aim of life, the aim of life. And we came to chapter seven, where Jesus talked about a lot of things, including not judging other people, and also um, the concept of prayer. That is asking, seeking, and knocking, where we understood that these are not distinct activities, but they are actually continuous, okay? So when you ask, okay, you must seek. And as you seek, you knock and the doors are open. So um, when you are praying to God to give you, um, or you are praying to God to, to, to give you a job, you don't just pray and sit in your room. Once you ask, you, he gives the direction and you seek and you knock, that's ask. Okay, and God is going to open the door for you. And even if that door is not open, we understood that rejection is a redirection. Then we came to chapter eight and nine where we looked at certain miracles. Of course, we understood the significance of all the miracles. And in chapter eight, we looked at the miracle of, of, of um, the healing of the centurion's daughter and why Jesus told him that he has never seen a, such great faith. And in chapter nine, we looked at the woman with the issue of blood. Then we came to chapters 10 and 11 and 12 where um, Jesus was actually sending his disciples out and we saw the shift from the 
the term um, disciples, the term apostles. And we understood that apostles are those that are sent. Okay, and chapter 12 ended with what we called the public rejection of Christ by the Jews, where they attributed the miracles of Christ to Beelzebub, which is the demon of lies. So when that happened, that introduced us to chapter 13, which we did last week, which was talking about the seven kingdom parables. And we understood that the parables actually were not to make the illustrations easier, but rather was to hide divine mysteries from those that were blind. Because Jesus said unto his disciples that for you, it is given to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but unto them it is not given. We saw the seven kingdom parables and the implications of each of them. Of course, we link the geographical location of Christ to the significance of the um, parables. Of course, the first parable talked about the parable of the sower, where we saw the four soils, and we looked at the various interpretations of that parable. And I highlighted the fact that Christ called it the parable of the sower, and hence we must put emphasis, premium on the sower. And the attitude of the sower in this case is that of persistence. Because though he was sowing around only 25% of his seeds were productive, then that brought us to the second parable, which was the parable of the wheat and the tares. And we understood from that parable that the sower is not, the, the, the master actually is not asleep. But whilst men, those that the master have put in charge of the farm slept, the enemy came in and he sowed tares. And we understood why the master told them to allow the tares and then the wheat to go together because in one's attempt to uproot the tares, because of how the tares have intertwined amongst the roots of the wheat, it's usually difficult separating them. Therefore, it's only at maturity that we see those that are actual um, wheat because of the fruits that they produce, and then those that are tares. Of course, he said the tares are going to be removed and put in an everlasting fire, and so on and so forth. So these were some of the things we learned um, I mean, we've learned so far. And that puts us in a better perspective to zoom into chapter 14, 15, and 16. Now, in, in these chapters, we are going to see um, some miracles. And if you've been, I mean, following the study, you, under you understand that the miracles are strategically positioned, okay? And I'm sure we've seen some of them. So we are going to see some of these miracles. And what I want you to take from today's session Okay, it's how we are going to link certain, certain um, scenes over here to the four soils that we looked at in chapter 13. So in chapter 13, we looked at four soils. And when you get to chapter 14 and chapter 15, I'm going to bring up four different scenarios and how we can link them to the four soils. So in effect, you will see that the chapter 14 and chapter 15 are just practical demonstration of the chapter 13. If you remember, when we did chapters 
5 to 7, which were the Sermon on the Mountain. We saw that chapters 8 and 9, we saw certain 10 miracles over there, which were just practical demonstration of the Sermon on the Mountain. You're going to see the same thing over here. Christ has given us the parables, and then we are going to see how these discourses can be linked to these four soils. And we will end with chapter 16. That is what we are going to emphasize on today. The concept of divine revelation. So with that in mind, we can start. So let's start with 14 verse 1. Okay. So when it came to pass, as he went into the house of one of the chief um, Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. And behold, there was a certain man. Am I reading? Oh, sorry. I am actually reading the wrong. I'm supposed to be at Matthew and I've opened um, Luke. Sorry about that. Let me just close it. Okay. Okay, good. So, um, please, are, are you all okay with this? I'm sure I was reading something else. Please, can, can you see the screen? Yes, please, you can see. Okay, good. Sorry about that. Now, Matthew chapter 14. So, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servant, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. And therefore, mighty works um, do shoot forth themselves in him. So now, um, in chapter 14, Herod had already killed um, John the Baptist. Okay. So. Um, from the verse 3 down was he, um, Matthew is just coming to explain what has already happened. Okay, so at this point, John has been behead, beheaded and Matthew is coming to explain that whole scenario, okay? Good. So verse 3, for Herod had laid hold on him, on John, and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. So actually what happened was that Herod had gone for his brother's wife and John went to confront him. And because of that, Herod arrested John. Okay. Okay, verse 4. For John said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted John as a prophet. Okay, so he couldn't kill John because um, remember I said that Herod was not the actual king of Israel. Okay. We, we did that in chapter 2. He was not the actual king of Israel, okay? He was a king that the, the Romans had imposed on um, the Jews, okay? So that, that, was, that was the reason why, um, um, of course, this, this, Herod, this Herod is not the same Herod that killed the children under two, okay? Herod is just a title, okay? So this Herod is different from the other Herod. Now, if you look at this carefully, he said Herod the Tetrarch, okay? The other um, um, Herod that we saw um, who, who asked um, them to kill the other children under two, he was a different 
um, um, Herod. Okay, mm -hmm. so they are they are different. So um, I think that Herod was. Um, let me see if I can get his name. But he was he was a different um, Herod. So we shouldn't um, get 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 confused with that. Okay, uh -huh. I'll I'll get the name and, and let you know. So verse five. Okay, I've talked about verse five. Verse six. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatever or whatsoever she asked. And she, being before instructed of her mother, said, give me here John the Baptist's head in a charter, okay? Now, I don't know why the mother will ask the girl to actually go for John's head, okay? But the, the, the lesson I want us to learn from this side is, you see, um, and especially to the ladies, okay? When um, you get married, don't allow other people to be feeding you with certain things, okay? Um, it could even be your, your, your parents or your friends, okay? They can ask you, for example, you will notice that when the girl took the hair to the mother, the mother said, what should I do with it, okay? And you realize that um, they've given you advice that will make you do something, but then later on, they will take themselves out of it and you are going to live without consequence, okay? So that's a lesson we can learn from the verse eight, okay? So verse nine is saying, and the king was sorry, nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them that sat with him admit, he commanded it to be given to her. And he sent and beheaded John in prison. And his head was brought in a charger, given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. Okay, of course, when you read, when you read the other gospels, you realize that um, and the mother said, what should I do with this thing? Okay. okay, verse 12. And John's disciples came, took the body, and buried it, and went and told Jesus. Verse 13. And when Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place. And when the people heard thereof, they followed him on foot. Um, of the city, okay, foot out of the city. Now, this is now going to introduce us to um, the miracle of Jesus multi multiplying the bread, okay? Now, and you understand that Jesus multiplied bread two times, one in chapter 14 and one in chapter 15. We will see that very soon, okay? A lot of people think that the multiplication of bread was only once. We are going to see that Jesus multiplied bread two times, okay? So verse 14, and Jesus went forth and, and saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion towards them and he healed their sickness. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place and the time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves um, food or victuals, okay? Verse 16, but Jesus said unto them, they need not depart, give ye them to eat. Wow. So now, I want you also to, to look at the contrast between the character of Jesus and the character of, the, of his disciples. Because this is going to be very important in the subsequent verses that I'm going to read, okay? Look at the character of Jesus, the compassionate character of Jesus, and the selfish character of the disciples. Okay, very, very critical. Okay, now verse 17. And when... 
verse 17. And they said unto to him, We have only five loaves and two fishes. And he said unto them, Bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves of, of bread and um, two fishes. He looked up to heaven. He blessed it and he broke it. And he gave the loaves to his disciples. And then the disciples to the multitude. Verse 19, the steps are very, very important. If you want to experience miracles in your life, the, the steps in verse 19 is very, very important. Look at the steps very, very well. Okay. One, what did he do? He commanded them to sit on the grass. Okay. That is talking about um, relaxation amidst difficult times. You see, when you are stressed, and things are not going on well. We don't just start blaming God and just um, talking anyhow, okay? Just calm down, sit. That's the first step for, for um, miracles, okay? You have to relax. And you can only relax when you have faith in the one who has asked you to sit down, okay? And we are going to notice that there are about 5,000 people. He commanded all of them to sit down first, okay? And two, he took the five loaves and then the two fishes. That is to say, five loaves and two fishes is actually small, okay? But you see, whatever small thing you have, whenever you give it to Christ, you see here, they, they gave it to Christ, okay? You, you might have little money, you might have little, whatever it is, okay? Little knowledge, uh, people might not even see you, but when you hand that gift of yours into the hands of Christ, we are going to see what Christ is going to do with it. So, um, of course, this 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 five loaves and then two fishes okay um they were from the disciples okay i'm sure that in the other the other the verse 15 okay that's when they took from the little boy okay but this one it was the disciples it was barely enough to feed feed the disciples okay now you notice that they gave it to christ they they gave the bread to christ okay and then see what christ did. and christ looking up to heaven and that should be the orientation of our sights always looking upwards to heaven not sideways because when you look sideways and you look at the multitude you have to feed okay it might break you but you must look upward and see the omnipotence of he that is up <clears throat> okay and what did he do he blesses and another version say he gave thanks okay now we should understand that thanksgiving is always a prerequisite for multiplication okay anytime you thank god you are, you are going to get ready for a multiplication because thanksgiving in the Greek is what is, is charis, okay? It has the root word charis, that is thanksgiving. And then that same word charis means grace. So therefore, grace is the same as thanksgiving, okay? The difference between grace and thanksgiving is actually in the direction, okay? Thanksgiving is from us to God, then grace is from God to us. So whenever we give thanks to God, God releases grace for multiplication. Okay, so they are all charis in the Greek. So you give thanks to God, God multiplies. You give thanks to God, God multiplies. Okay, you, you, you don't, you see, thanksgiving, you see, most often than not, we, we, we make we make mistake of making thanksgiving an aftermath, okay? It's when we receive, that is when we give thanks. It's good to thank God after God has blessed you, okay? But it's even better to thank God before he blesses you. 
before you see the miracles, before you see the multiplication, you give thanks to God. And that in itself opens up heavens, okay? And it pours out grace onto you. And then, so we've seen that he commanded them to sit. He took the five loaves of, of bread. He looked up to heaven. He blessed it or he gave thanks. And then he broke it. You see, hmm, unless God breaks you, you cannot be distributed. You see, there are a lot of people around that God wants to use you to reach. Okay, and sometimes we are just one individual. You are just five loaves of bread. How can God make you useful to all these people? Unless God breaks you. So God is going to break you and multiply you, and then distribute you. And you can notice that your single life can bless a lot of people because God has broken you. Anytime God breaks you, you see, if I have a loaf of bread and I break it once, I can share it to two people. If I break it 100 times, I can share it to a lot of people. So whenever you look in your life and God is breaking you, get ready. God is going to use you for exploits, okay? And the last one, the, the, the next one is that, and he gave the loaves of bread to his disciples and then the disciples gave them to the multitude, okay? So let's, let's take note of the uh, verse, verse, verse 19. Okay, the verse, verse 19, very well. Okay, good. Let's continue. So verse 20, and they did call it and were full. I want you to look at the word, all, okay? Everyone ate and they were filled. And they took up the fragment that remained and that was 12 baskets full. 12 baskets. Why the number 12? Okay, I'll, I'll leave us to, to think about it because I always say that um, in studying the Bible, you should always, you, you don't just skip the numbers. Whenever you see a number, it has a significance, okay? It has significance. Okay, verse 21. And they that had eaten were about 5,000 men. We've not added women and children, besides women and children, okay? And straightway. So verse 22. Now, after this miracle was done, Jesus sent his disciples away, okay? <laughs> and then Jesus himself went to escort the multitude out. Now, he didn't want his disciples to go and escort the multitude out. Why? Why? Because, once again, when you contrast the character of, of the disciples and the character of Christ, you realize that the disciples could have used this opportunity, okay, to, to um, how do you call it, be arrogant or, or proud or something like that, okay? They were going, I mean, meet them and say, oh, did you see this miracle? Yeah, that's my boss, you know? Meanwhile, they, were, they rather wanted to sack them away, okay? So Jesus rather sent his disciples into a ship oh, to go before him onto the other side while he, Jesus, sent the multitudes away. Verse 23. And when he had sent the multitude away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when evening was come, he was there alone. Oh, verse 24. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. Now, this is the climax of chapter 14. This part is the climax of chapter, of chapter 14. Why is it the climax? It's the climax because now you understand that Jesus was the one who set up this situation. Because when Jesus was sending them on the ship, he knew that there, there, there was a wind over there. But Jesus actually sent them on the ship so that the disciples will encounter the wind. Why this? You see, sometimes when, when Christians are going through something, okay, we, we always blame Satan. Okay? But at times, it's actually what is called a setup. 
Christ will just set something up for you. And it's critical for Christ to set something up for you because we saw that the disciples were not matured, okay? And sometimes it only takes situations, okay, for you to get a revelation of who Christ is, and that is going to mature you. So now we are going to see here that Jesus has sent them to the, the, the mist alone. This is the first time Jesus has separated himself from his, his disciples, okay? And he did that because Christ, all this while, has been with the disciples. He has, he has actually protected them, shielded them. Now he has left them on their own, and they are on the sea. Being faced with these tempestuous storms and this, um, what, what the Bible termed as the contrary winds, the winds are blowing, and they are, in, they are distressed, they are troubled, they are afraid. Now, Jesus has gotten them. He said, yes, I want you to be right over here. And when you look at it, he said, the ship was now in the midst of the sea. That means that they can't turn back. You are in the middle of the sea. The same distance that um, you take to go back is the same distance for you to cross to the other side. And that was exactly where Jesus want them, wanted them to be, right in the midst of the sea, right in the middle of the trouble. See, what's going to happen over here is that Jesus is going to calm the storm and they are now going to get a revelation of Christ Jesus, which they might have never received. Okay, you see, situations lead to revelation. There is no way you can get a revelation of Christ being the resurrection and the death if there is no death. There is no way we would have seen that Christ can raise the dead if someone had not died. There is no way we can see that Christ is the provider of food if people were not hungry. There is no way we can see that Christ will calm the storm if there was no storm. And when you are in the midst of the storm and Christ calms the storm, then you get a revelation of Christ that Christ is my God who can calm storms. So at times he sets up or he allows this situation so that he will reveal himself to you in a way that you might have never um, 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 gotten to know him outside that situation. So it becomes critical to understand that at times Christ allows certain situations in our life because most often than not, he shelters us. And then in that place of being sheltered by Christ, we tend to become arrogant and we tend to become pompous. And we, we actually are not Christ-like in that situation of being sheltered by Christ. So at times he takes himself off and allows us to be on our own. And when Christ allows you to be your own, then situations come in. And then in the midst of that situation, he shows up and gives you a revelation of himself like never before. Uh, so therefore, um, we saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being put in the fire. Oh, of course, they were in the fire. They were in the fire. But someone asked, God, why did you allow me in this fire? But if God did not allow them to get into the fire, how would we know that there was a fourth one in the fire who looked like the son of man? How will you know that God can sustain us in the fire before he delivers us out of the fire? Yes, yes, it's, it's critical to understand that. So that was exactly the situation that Christ was setting up in this scenario, asking his disciples to go before him in the ship. And in the midst of the sea, the contrary winds came. Now let's continue with verse 26. And when the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were troubled, saying, it is a spirit. The other version says, it is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. 
but straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheers, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him, saying, Lord, if it be thou, bid me to come unto thee on the water. And Jesus said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid, and he began to sink. And he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore this thou doubts? And when they were come unto the ship, the wind ceased. Then they, they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth thou art the Son of God. Now we can see that they've gotten a revelation uh, of a truth. So that means that all this while they've been with Christ, but they actually they doubted him. But this situation was very critical because now they had a revelation of who Christ is there by saying that of a truth thou art the Son of God. Now let's go up and look at certain things over here and see what's actually going on with this um, um, Peter walking on water. But before that, we will go to 26 and see that when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water, they were troubled, saying it is a spirit or it is a ghost. And they cried out, okay. You see, at times when you've been in troubles, okay, and even when God sends forth people to help you, you see them as, as, as ghosts or as people who are coming to take advantage of you. For example, you know, there, there are certain people that they don't want to enter into relationships because of their past relationships, okay? Maybe people have done certain things to them and people have abused them, people have misused them, people have done all manner of things to them, okay? And now God is sending forth an angel or God is sending forth a good person to them. And then in their mind, says, ah, this person is just like them. In quotes, all men are the same. This person has come to also make my life miserable. And you are going to see the person that God has sent unto you like a ghost. Meanwhile, this is a savior that God is, is bringing to you. And that's why we saw here the disciples yeah. attributing the personality of Christ to a ghost. But Jesus said, that be of good cheers for it is I, be not afraid. And we saw Peter saying that, Lord, if it is you, bid me to come. Now, Jesus said, come. Okay. And when Peter was, when Peter came out of the ship, Peter was walking on the water. You see, a lot of people think that Peter walked on water, but I always say Peter did not walk on water. Peter walked on the word come because if there had not been any release of the word come, Peter would have sunk in the water. So when Jesus released the word come, the word come became that anti-Archimedes um, um, anti law that prevented um, Peter from sinking. And the same way, when we, we, when we go to John chapter 11 and we see Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, he said, Lazarus, come forth. Of course, in that miracle, he had to be very careful to mention Lazarus' name because if Jesus had said, comfort, all the dead in the graves would have comfort, but he was specific. Lazarus, comfort. In this case, he told Peter, Peter, comfort, come. And Peter walked on the word of God. So therefore, the word of God then becomes something that we can walk on when times are difficult. When God releases the word, you can walk on it. But we see over here that Peter was actually moving towards Christ Okay, looking unto Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured. Okay, so here, Christ is the, is the author and the perfecter of Peter's faith. Now, Peter had to just look, in, look unto Jesus. So looking unto Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith. Now, if you take your eyes off Jesus and you begin to look, you begin to look at the sights, you begin to look 
at the winds, you begin to look at the troubles and you take your gaze off Jesus, you are going to sink because it's your gaze at Jesus that is giving you the faith to walk uh, on the water. So it's, 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 it's critical to understand why Peter began to sink when Peter looked around. Now, of course, I was explaining to someone one implication of this, um, of this uh, um, scene that um, most of them are not. When you look to Jesus, you become Christ-like and you move towards Christ, okay? Because it's like um, what is called um, being Christ-like. Being Christ-like. You can only become Christ-like if you look to Christ. If you look to Christ, you become Christ-like. But if you look to the circumstances, you will sink. So any Christian that then gives more attention to circumstances then sinks spiritually. Let's go on to the next. Wow, we have a lot of things to... Let me just rush with this part. Okay. So um, I think that's, that's the end of this. This I've, I've, I've actually spoken about the most important. Let's, let, let's run to verse 15. So verse 15, then came Jesus to the scribes and the Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. Okay, I mean, this does not mean that they, they, they don't wash their hands, okay? But actually... They have some rit I mean, rituals that you, you have to perform before you eat bread, okay? So they were just saying that, why is that your, your disciples don't do that? Verse 3, but he answered and said unto them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your traditions? For God commanded, saying, honor your father and your mother. He that cursed father or mother, let him die. But ye say, whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, it is a gift by, whatso by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me and honor not his father or his mother he shall be free thou hast thou have ye made the commandment of god of none effect by your tradition okay now what this is saying is that you see god god commanded that every every money that you make give a percentage to your your parents okay okay but these people but what what's what was exempted is when someone gives you a gift then that one you you are not supposed to give part to your your parents okay uh, but your income, there's a percentage that you, you give to your parents. So what these people were doing was that even if they get an income, they will say, oh, this is a gift. Then they don't, they don't give it to their, they don't give some to their parents, okay? So th that's exactly what he's saying. Verse 5, let me read it again. But he say, whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, it is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, okay? And honor not his father or his mother. He shall be free. So you are free of giving them whatever thing you're supposed to give unto them. So we are saying that it is a gift, so I am not supposed to give. So Jesus is saying that you, you also, you've been doing this. So you're also transgressing the, the traditions of law. Why are you coming to accuse my disciples? And then seven, Jesus said, ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah, that's Isaiah, prophesy to you saying, these people draw it nigh unto me with their mouths and unless me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This is what is called lip worship, where you only profess mechanically with your mouth on church. You go and sing songs of praise, but yet in your heart, your heart is far from God. That's nine. But in vain they do worship me, teaching, teaching for the doctrines, I mean, teaching for doctrines, the commandments of men. Verse 10. And he called the multitude and said unto to them, Hear ye me understand. Okay, it's not that which comes out of a man's mouth that defies him, but that which 
sorry, sorry. It's not that which goes into the mouth of a man that defies him, but that which comes out of the mouth that defies him. This is a very important thing. Okay, you're saying that it's not what goes into you that defiles you, but it's what which comes out of you. Okay, of course, we, we, we can make this more, um, how do you call it, um, physiological or in terms of um, um, anatomy. Of course, when you put food inside your mouth, the food that you are eating is not that which defiles you. Okay? But all the secretions and all the things that come out of you are things that will defy you. I'm sure you understand the, 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 what I'm saying. Okay, because you, you put food in your mouth, then something comes out of your, your, your inner canal. Okay, that which comes of, out of your inner canal is that which defiles you. But that which goes into your mouth, it doesn't defy you, of course. Um, I mean, that's something interesting over here. But Jesus is saying that what, what goes into you doesn't defy you. For example, if I come and I insult someone, okay, if I'm insulting, um, let's say Angela, okay, I'm insulting Angela, okay, my insult does, does not defy Angela. But if Angela now reciprocates and Angela insults me, then now Angela has defiled herself because of that which has come out of her mouth. Okay, and, and, and that, is, that is critical to understand. Verse 12 is saying that the disciples came unto him and they said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after hearing what you said? Okay, but he answered unto them, Every plant which my, which my heavenly father has not planted, he sh shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into a ditch. Of course, this is where we, we got that um, saying from, okay, verse 15. And Peter, and then answered Peter unto them, Declare us unto this parable. So Peter is asking Jesus, now explain to us this parable, okay, of what, I mean, um, that parable of what enters a man defiles, a, a, I mean, that's not defiling a man, but what comes out of a man defiles a man. Now Jesus is going to explain it in verse 16. And Jesus said to them, Are ye also yet without understanding? Do ye not yet understand that whatsoever entered into the mouth goes into the stomach? Okay. Uh -huh. And it's cast into the drought. Okay, verse, verse 18. But those things which comes out of a man's mouth, from the heart, they are the things that defiles the man. For out of the heart proceeded evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. These are the things which defiles a man. But to eat with unwashed hands defiled not a man. So now Jesus is saying, that the, the Pharisees were saying that you guys don't wash your hands when you eat. But when you eat without washing your hands, it does not defile you. But the things that actually defiles you are the evil thoughts, the fornication, the theft, the false witnesses, the blasphemy. These are the things that actually defiles a man. Of course, we are talking about spiritual and, 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 and how do you call it, psychological defilement as compared to the physical defilement which comes by you eating not with washed hands. Of course, when you eat with your hands unwashed, you might get... Um, infections or some other things, okay, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is more, I mean, into the spiritual matters than onto the physical matters. Verse 21, then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast, oh, I love this part, of the Thai and Sidon. Now, this is the climax of chapter 15. And Jesus beheld, or sorry, and behold, a woman of Cana, which, this, this man is uh, the one we call the Canaanite woman or the Syrophoenician woman, okay, so she came out of the coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is grievously vexed with, a with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came unto him and besought him, saying, Send her away, send her away, for she cried after us. 
Uh, but he answered and said, I am not, he answered to the, to the woman, okay, to the woman, that I am not sent, but to the lost house, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now we are seeing this phrase again, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay, now Jesus is saying that I only came to Israel, okay? Now, it, it, I'm sure we remember when you were doing the chapters 11 and 12 that when Jesus sent his disciples, he said that only going to the house of Israel. So now, when we see the disciples sacking the woman, they had every right to sack her because Christ himself have, um, told the disciples that don't have anything to do with the Gentiles because it is not yet time. So then the woman came, the woman who did not deserve this miracle because it was not yet time for the Gentiles. Now the emphasis was on the house of Israel. Okay. So now the woman needed something that she did not deserve. Let's see what's going to happen. Then came she, worship him saying, Lord, help me. Now we, we see this phrase again, Lord, help me. Now when Peter was sinking, you remember what Peter said, Lord, save me. Here the woman is saying, Lord, help me. And anytime you cry out unto the Lord, okay, this, this is what is called real prayer. Real prayer is when you first see that he is your Lord. You see, a lot of people have accepted Jesus as their Savior, but not their Lord. When you use the word Lord, it means that you're your master. Okay, so here she's actually worshiping God. You see, he worshiped God. That means that he elevated Christ to the, the level of lordship. You see, how high you elevate Christ is going to determine how low Christ is going down to deliver your daughter from the devil. Because now huh, she has exalted Christ into the level of lordship. Okay, because the assignment that she wants, okay, will involve Christ going down to the belly of hell to deliver her daughter. So how high you elevate Christ is proportional to how low he's going down to actually help you. Okay, verse 20 says, but he, but he answered and said, it is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. Uh, of course, someone will say, why is Jesus referring to the woman as a dog? Mm -hmm. And I said, when, when we were doing the chapter 2, I brought up the difference between the Samaritans and then the Israelites. Okay? And I said the Israelites saw the Samaritans as dogs. Uh, because according to them, they were impure because they were a mixture of Jews and then the um, Philistines. So they saw them as people who are not pure. Uh, so the woman did not get offended when Jesus considered her to be a dog. But 27, and she said, truth, Lord, yet the, dog, the dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And then Jesus said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto you, even as thou will. And her daughter was made whole from that hour. Verse 29, Jesus departed from thence and came nigh into the sea of Galilee and went up onto the mountain and sat down. Now the multitude have come again and they are going to get hungry again. Verse 30, and the multitude came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, men, and, other, and others, and cast them at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus healed them all, okay? In so much that the multitude wondered. And when they saw the dumb speak and the men be made whole and the lame walk and the blind see, they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples and said unto them, Okay, I have compassion on the multitude because they continued with me now for three days and they have nothing to eat. And I will not send them away fasting, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said unto them, When should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill so great a multitude? 
Now remember here that they have forgotten that Jesus was the same person who multiplied the bread. Just a chapter away. And Jesus said unto them, how many loaves have you? And they said, seven and a few fishes. Now, contrasting the, the, the multiplication of bread in chapter 14 and chapter 15. In chapter 14, there were five loaves of bread and two fishes. Here, there are seven loaves of bread and a few fishes. Okay, that is one difference. Verse 35, and he commanded the multitude once again to sit down. Oh, and he took the seven loaves of bread and he gave them and he break and he gave it to the disciples and the disciples gave to the multitude. The same steps again. Okay, sitting down, giving thanks, breaking the bread, giving to the disciples, and then giving it to the disciples to give to the multitude. And they eat and they were filled. And then what was left? Seven baskets were full, as compared to the chapter 14, where there were 12 full baskets. Okay, and they that ate were how many? This one was 4,000 men, the other one was 5,000 men, besides women and children. And he sent the multitude away. They, they took a ship and they came to the coast of Magdala. Now, Magdala is a place. So when you, when you hear the name Mary Magdalene, the Magdalene is not her same name, but just a description of where she comes from. Let's end with the last chapter. Our time is almost up. Chapter 16. Let's go to chapter 16 and see what's, what's, what, what is there. Okay. So chapter 16, the Pharisees, um, also with the Sadducees came, tempting, I love this part, tempting um, and tempting, desiring him that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said unto them, um, when it is evening, you say, oh, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. When it is in the morning, you can detect and say that, oh, it's foul weather today, for the sky is red and um, lowering, okay? Ye hypocrites, if you can discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern, but can you not discern the, the, the signs of the times, okay? He said you can discern the face of the sky. For example, this morning is, is, is a bit cloudy, okay? So you can tell that, oh, it's going to rain. It's even raining, okay? But you can do that physically, but you cannot discern the times that you are, we are in. And it applies also to us, okay? If you look at all the things that are going on, I'm sure Jesus will be telling you or asking you, can't you discern the times that we are in? Verse 14, a wicked and an adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. But no sign shall be given unto them except the sign of prophet Jonah. Now, we have already discussed this in the previous sections, okay? What it means by the, the sign of the prophet Jonah. And in that chapter, we saw when Jesus said that for three days and three nights, that Jonah was in the, in the belly of a, of a big fish, so, that, um, so shall the son of man be. So he was telling them that the only sign that they will receive is that Christ will die and then you'll be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights, okay? So then the, the Pharisees left and departed. Sorry, I mean, Jesus left and, and departed. Verse 15. And when his disciples were come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said unto them, take heed and be aware of the living of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, we have established the concept of living in chapter 13. When we are, when we are discussing the the kingdom parables, where a woman took living and hid it in a mirror. Okay, so whenever we talk about living, as I said, we are always talking about arrogance, something that Paul would describe as corrupting by puffing up, okay? So he's describing them as, as living. But the disciples, you know, at, at this stage, their, their intelligence level was very low. When Jesus was talking about the, the living 
um, of the Pharisees, okay, they were thinking that, oh, because they didn't bring bread, that's why Jesus is using the, the allegory of, of bread, okay? So verse 7, and they reason among themselves saying, it is because we have taken no bread. And when Jesus, which when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, oh, ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourself because ye have brought no bread? Do ye not yet understand? Neither remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets ye took up. Neither the seven loaves of the 4,000. So here Jesus himself is emphasizing that he, he multiplied bread twice. So if you, you never knew this before today, see it over here. Jesus himself is saying that he multiplied bread twice. He said that, don't you remember the first five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets ye took up? And the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many baskets ye took up, okay? How is it that ye do not understand when I speak it not to you concerning bread, okay? But you should be aware of the living of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Then understood they how that he bade them not um, 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 how to be aware of the living bread, but the doctrines of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse 13. And when Jesus came to the coasts, now this is where we are ending. This is also the climax of chapter 16. We are ending with this. And when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, uh, he asked his disciples, saying, and that is the title of today's message, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said unto, unto and they said, Some say that you are John the Baptist. Of course, we saw that, we saw that um, Herod, Herod, Herod himself, King Herod had mentioned that, oh, this is John the Baptist who has come back and he's doing a lot of miracles. So some thought that he was John the Baptist. Who has resurrected? And others thought that you are Elias, that is Elijah. And others think that you are Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he said unto them that it's not about what other people think about me, but who say ye that I am? Uh, that is the question. Who is Christ to you? Who do you think Jesus is? Because your answer of that question is going to determine how well you are going to spend eternity. The 16th is saying, and Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Christus, the Son of the living God. Hmm. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bajona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee but my father which is in heaven. Uh, I think yesterday I, I already, I mean, spoke about, about this. I'll just emphasize some of the things that I want us to, to look at over here. Of course, the first thing I want us to notice here is why, why is Jesus calling him Simon Bajona? Okay, remember that Simon is, you see, Simon Peter. Okay, Simon Peter is, is actually Peter's name, okay? Um, um, Simon, Simon is his, his, his um, Greek name. Uh, no, I mean, Simon, Simon is his Hebrew name and Peter is his Greek, Greek name, okay? So they are, all, they are all his names, okay? Just as um, Paul and Saul, okay? And people say that, oh, Paul's name, I mean, Saul's name was changed to Paul. But it's, it's not so, okay? They were all his name. One is just the Greek name and one is the, 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 the Hebrew name, okay? So here he's saying Simon Bajona. And anytime you hear the word Bajona, it means son of Jonah, okay? That means that 
that means that Peter's father was called Jonah. Of course, when, when we see the word um, Bartimius, son of Timius, okay, so the same way, Baduna, son, son of John. Now, Jesus is emphasizing on Peter's earthly father over here, okay, for reason that for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you. The flesh and blood over here is talking about Peter's earthly um, link, has not revealed this unto you, but my father which is in heaven, which is talking about Peter's heavenly link. So the flesh and blood, which is earthly, did not give Peter this revelation. But the Father, which is in heaven, which is his heavenly relationship, that gave Peter this revelation. So therefore, flesh and blood cannot give you revelation. No one can give you. Sometimes you see when you go to church, you say, hey, this is a revelation. Okay, but it was actually information. Revelation is actually giving spiritually. Revelation is a spiritual impact. Anytime you receive a revelation, it transforms you. So when you go to church and you hear something say, oh, this one is a revelation, but yet your life has not been transformed. It is just head knowledge and it is just an information. So therefore, Peter's revelation about Christ changed Peter. Because from this state, from this um, chapter going, we are going to see a new form of Peter. Because Peter has now grasped the revelation of who Christ is. So flesh and blood, flesh and blood has not revealed this. Of course, this brings us to the concept of divine revelation. And here we understand that no human being can give you a divine revelation except the creator himself. Because it's only the creator that can reveal himself to the creature. You see, you cannot reveal yourself to God. Because God is your creator. But God is the one that reveals himself to the lesser creature. And we should understand that no creature can force God to reveal himself to them. You can't. So you can't say that, oh, I'm fasting so that I'll get a revelation of God. You see, in your fast, it's God that has the prerogative rights to actually decide whether he's going to reveal himself to you or not. You can't say you are, you are fasting and you are, you, are, you are going to make God reveal himself to you. Uh, therefore, it's only the humble, those that are humble, those that are poor in spirit, that God sees as the right candidate to reveal himself to. Okay, so um, that is it. it, it it's, it's, it's your character that is going to determine whether you are going to receive a revelation from God or not. And as I said, when you receive a revelation from God, it's going to change you. Now, when you talk about revelation, revelation is, is um, something that your human mind cannot comprehend. Okay, so um, revelation is not understood by the natural mind. Because the Bible said, in when you read Second, First uh, Corinthians chapter two, from verse six downwards, is that for we speak wisdom amongst the perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the prince of this world, which should come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in mystery. Okay, which which wisdom was hid even before the foundations of the world unto our glory, which none of the prince of this world had known. For if they had known, they wouldn't have crucified the King of Glory. But as it is written, for eyes have not yet seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered the heart of man what God has prepared for those that love him. But God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, even the deep things of God. For what man is he that receiveth the things of God, save the Spirit of man which is inside of him? Even so, then the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. So what Paul is saying here in First Corinthians chapter 2 is that the natural man cannot receive a revelation of God. So therefore, your physiological eye and ear, and even your mind cannot understand, cannot comprehend, cannot grasp the revelation of God if you are a natural man. It only takes the regenerated man, the one that is spiritually born again, the spiritual man, 
is the one that can receive such insight, such revelation of God. So therefore, one, one, one writer said, Paul Tillich, and I love him, he said that, uh, what then is revelation? He said, revelation then must be given and revelation must be received. What, what does this mean? It means that if God does not give a, a revelation, how can you say there is any revelation at all? And if God gives the revelation and there is no creature to actually um, um, receive that revelation, then it cannot be revelation. So therefore, revelation must be given. That is from God's side. And revelation must be received. That is from our side for it to be a revelation. So therefore, the only time or the only reason why God will reveal himself is when there is a creature for God to reveal himself to. Uh, even before the creation of the world, before the creation of man, before God created anything, there was no need for revelation because who was there for God to reveal himself to? But revelation became very critical and essential when God created man because then there is a creature for God to manifest or reveal himself to. Uh, there is difference between revelation and manifestation. Let me just bring that up. There's difference between revelation and manifestation. Manifestation is from without. Revelation is from within. Manifestation is outwardly. Revelation is inwardly. For example, when Jesus healed or the blind man, okay, what people saw from outside was a manifestation. What the Pharisees saw was a manifestation. They only saw that Christ has manifested something. There is an outward manifestation. The blind man can see. But yet... It's only the blind man and the disciples that got a revelation of who Jesus is as a result of that manifestation. So anytime there is an outward manifestation, it provokes two kinds of groups. There are those that receive revelation from that manifestation, and there are those that become jealous from that manifestation. Uh, so for example, maybe you, you buy a car or something like that. Someone say, oh, this is the, this is the goodness of the Lord. And that group will start being jealous. Though it's the same manifestation, yet another group got a revelation out of it, and another group just became envious of that. So, um, I mean, I mean, for, for the Bible students, it's always good we understand some of these things when you talk about manifestation, when you talk about um, revelation. Okay, let's let's let let's let's finish it up, and then um, let's go to verse eighteen. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Of course, there are a lot of things over here in the verse 18. Now, Jesus is saying, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Which rock is Jesus going to build this church upon? Is it upon Peter? So some people say, oh, Peter is the foundation of the church because it's upon Peter that Christ is building his church. <laughs> Others are saying that, oh, it's not Peter, but it's, it's upon the revelation that Peter got that Christ is going to build his church. <laughs> but yet, I see that the rock is Christ himself. Christ cannot build the, the, the church upon Peter. Peter cannot sustain the church. When you look at the meaning of the word Peter, that is the word Petros. And the meaning of the word rock, that is the word Petra. They are different. Petros means a rock. Sorry, Petros means a stone or a chip from a rock. Whereas Petra is the rock himself. So you see, you can have a big rock and then you can cut part of the rock. So when you have the big rock, it's called Petra. When you cut part of the rock, it's called Petros. So Peter then is a chip. Peter over there is Petros. That is a chip of the larger rock. And the larger rock is Christ. So when you go to the book of Corinthians, Paul said that Christ is that rock that followed the Israelites in the wilderness. Uh, that rock that provided the, the, the rivers of living water. When, when Moses struck that 
uh, um, that rock. Of course, that, that's why I always say God got angry because Peter, I mean, Moses just hits Christ. Okay, I mean, that's just by the way. And so the, the, the building of the church is not on Peter, but rather upon Christ himself, who is the solid rock. Uh, on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground, including Peter, are sinking sand. So therefore, if you exalt Peter, if you see Peter to be your foundation, then you have failed. And you say that, and the gate of hell shall not prevail against it. Of course, we looked at the concept of gates, those that were with us when we were studying the, the book of Proverbs, okay? We saw the concept of hell. I mean, the gates of, when you say gates, gates talk about a place where the authorities are, a place where they take decisions. And you see, it's the gate of hell. That means that, you see, some of, sometimes we think that it's the gate of hell that will come and attack us as a church. But no, if we say the gate of hell, that means that the church is rather moving to the territories of the devil. We are, we are, the, we are those that are going to attack. We are not on the defensive end, but we are on the attacking end. The gates of hell shall not prevail. That means that the church is getting to the point where we are going with full force, with full vim, with full power, with full authority to the gates of hell. And when we get there, they shall not prevail. We shall break the gates of hell and release all those that have been held captive. Uh, that is what Christ is saying. And that is the, should be the function and the responsibility of the church. We are breaking the gates of hell and releasing people and, and bringing captives out of captivity. Verse 19, he said, and I'll give thee the, the keys of, of heaven and of hell. Um, I mean, the, the, sorry, the keys of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt lose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should not tell any man that he was the Christ, because the time was not yet up. Uh, from that day onward, Jesus began to show unto his disciples that he must go into Jerusalem and he must suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and must be killed and raised again on the third day. And Peter took hold of him, and he rebuked him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, it shall not uh, be unto you. So Peter is saying that, No, you are not going to die. And, and, and Jesus took hold of Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou severed not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Just a few verses away, we saw that Peter was someone that the Father gave a revelation to. Now, that same Peter has become a vessel that the enemy is using. You see, you, sh you shouldn't be arrogant. Okay, the fact that you are getting revelation of God doesn't mean that the devil cannot um, use you at times. That's why, I mean, that, though someone might be a man of God, I mean, ministering unto God, but at times, you, you create certain opportunities in you, and then the devil enters you, and then he begins to use you. Remember here, that he's saying that, get thee behind me, Satan. He didn't say, get thee behind me, Peter. Get thee behind me, Satan. Where, where, is, where is Satan? Satan was, was actually in the, in, in the, in the, in the um, confines of, of, of Peter. Okay? So that's just something that we should look at. Verse 24, then Jesus said unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Of course, we've seen this earlier on. We've, we've talked about self-denial and carrying up your own cross. I said that when it comes to cross, you carry your own, your own cross. But when it comes to yoke or burden, you carry the yokes and burden of Christ, which is the salvation of souls. Verse 25, and whosoever shall save his life, he shall lose it. And whosoever shall lose it, his life, he shall find it. I mean, for my sake, shall find it. We have already seen this in previous chapters, okay? Verse 26, for what shall I, for what? Sorry, verse 26, for what is a man profited? If he shall gain the whole world and then lose his own soul. Or what shall a man give in exchange of his soul? 
for the Son of Man shall come in, his, in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he shall reward every man according to his works. And verily I say unto you, there are some of you standing here which shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his glory. What does this mean? That's the last verse. Does that mean that the disciples that he was talking to, they are not going to die, or there are some of the disciples still with us in this dispensation? Read again. Verily, I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his glory, coming in his kingdom. I'll leave you to think about that. So next week, we will look at chapter 17, where we are going to talk about the transfiguration of Christ and its implications. Thank you. God bless you all for staying. Any questions? Please, any questions before we close the session? Okay. So um, I think there are no questions. So um, someone should pray with us. Let me, let me call someone to pray with us then. then we end. Um, okay. Um, PK, please pray with us and let's... Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, we thank you so much for such a wonderful time studying the book of Matthew for chapter 14, chapter 16. As if understood um, your place, as if I that place in you and the importance of you being with us and our identity in you and why you came to the Gentiles at a particular time and the reasons why you did a lot of things for feeding the 4,000 to revealing yourself to Peter and to making us understand that in the, the, the times we are in, oh God, Father, let us understand these things and help us to apply them throughout our lives. In the mighty name of Jesus, I be prayed. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Thank you. God bless you, Brian. Yeah. God bless you too. So, next week, we will enter into another dimension of the transfiguration. What actually happened on the transfiguration? And why was Moses there? Why was Elijah there? What was the whole um, 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 concept of, of the transfiguration? Okay, we will enter there. And then, so we, we will do, at, I mean, chapter 17 to, let's say chapter 20, okay? Then that means that we have, we will have eight, we have eight chapters. There are 28 chapters in, in, in uh, Matthew, Matthew, okay? So we finish it. And then, you see how we, we've taken all the verse one, 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 one. That is how you should study your Bible. Not only your Bible, any book you are reading, okay? Always take your time. Make sure you understand. If you don't understand anything, find, find the understanding of it, okay? Of course, remember, if, you, if you're able to finish it for the rest of your life, you know that you have actually studied the book of Matthew very, very, very well. For the rest, I don't know how long you live up to, but for the rest of your life, you know that as for the book of Matthew, you understand any, everything over there, and when anyone asks you any question over there, you should be able to defend why Christ did certain things. God bless you. Amen. God bless you too. God bless you.